the two big things that are easiest to measure <clears throat> are birth weight and weaning weight, and it's pretty clear, uh, both in gilts and boars. If they're born bigger, um, they tend to, and they have a heavier weaning weight, um, they tend to stay in production longer and be more productive. Okay? And so the analogy I use is, is it doesn't guarantee that's what will happen, but they have the potential to do that. So the analogy I really like to use since uh, we're here in the, the southeast and NASCAR racing is pretty big, it's kind of like you have a race car and then you have the driver, the pit crew, and the gas. So you can think of that early stage in both boars and gilts as probably you're building their reproductive organs or the reproductive machinery, okay? And so that would, there's lots of data to suggest that late in pregnancy and then right after they're born, there's a lot of important things that happen in the reproductive organs of both the very young gilts and boars. So you kind of build that reproductive machinery early on, um, but you still have to sort of manage it good throughout the rest of the period and when they're kind of in commercial production. And so that would be, sort of like the race car drivers, the pit crew, and the gas. So you can have a really good engine, but if you have a really bad driver or pit crew or gas, you're not going to do well. And the opposite can be true, too, is if you don't build a very good engine in a car, you can have your best driver, the best pit crew, and the best gas in the world, but you're still not going to achieve what you want to do. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse. Your manure management experts. MS Gold. The best hygiene products in livestock farming. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Hi, welcome to today's uh, Swine It podcast. I'm Jerry Purvis, your host, and today we have a very distinguished guest, Dr. Billy Flowers. Uh, Dr. Flowers is a William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor of Animal Science at North Carolina State. And uh, before I get, let him tell a little, little bit about himself, just a uh, comment that uh, in our parts, uh, Dr. Flowers is a legend. In uh, producers, we have a lot to think. He's done a lot of work, but... Uh, We've learned a lot about uh, things that uh, practical applications, particularly in uh, reproductive animals. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Flowers, welcome to our SWIDEP podcast today. Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate uh, being able to visit with everybody today. Um, so a little bit about myself. Uh, I always uh, tell people that uh, um, my grandfather used to say that uh, even uh, – some blind hogs find a few acorns every now and then. So I think I found more than my share. But anyway, so I've been here at NC State for uh, 37 years. Um, it's the only job I've ever had. So that means that maybe I'm doing a pretty good job or I'm not employable anywhere else. So you can make that decision, right? But um, I think um, one of the things that I've really appreciated about being here in North Carolina and uh, the reason I took this job was when I interviewed um, – the industry was really, really progressive, I thought, and they were trying some things that maybe other people didn't try, and they were doing some things that other people said they couldn't do, <clears throat> and it was a, just kind of a really uh, neat environment to be in. So uh, I really enjoyed my 37 years that I've been here, and, uh, and so it's, it's, been, it's been fun. It's been a lot of changes in the industry, right? So uh, when I first started, just to, to give you an idea that uh, everybody was breeding sows naturally. Um, we didn't have computerized record keeping systems. Um, people would write things on note cards if they took records at all. Um, and then a lot of the things we knew about nutrition and other things hadn't even been discovered yet. So it's really been fun to watch 
all the growth and development, in all the different areas in that period of time. Yeah, very good. You know, it, I, to your point, uh, in my uh, time here, I, I'll uh, reiterate that uh, there has been a lot of changes. It's amazing over the last, even the last five years, you know, what uh, what's been learned. Here in North Carolina, you know, it's amazing that we're a state that's a corn deficit. We've been able to expand, you know, our production and, and uh, at one time, you know, greater in Iowa. I don't know if it's that way today, but uh, it's just amazing. And it's just uh you know, all the things and technologies we've been able to incorporate to help us maybe compete in a not so uh, uh, pleasant environment with the uh, cost structure. But, uh, but anyway, today, you know, we could, uh, I was thinking about, you know, a lot of the, you've done a lot of great work and uh, it's, it'd be hard to put in one podcast uh, maybe some of the, the things you've done. But we're, we're looking, uh, we're talking about the, uh, I guess more, more of your recent work here in Sal and, and uh, Boar Longevity. Uh, could you take a few minutes maybe and just kind of explain some of the work and, and some of what results you've been able to Give you a little bit of history about why we actually started uh, working in that area. So I go out, part of my job is um, I'll go out and work with our our industry and, you know, spend a lot of time on sow farms and things like that. And, um, you know, over the years there were, Farms that I thought were doing a really good job when they get the gilts in, they would do a really good job of preparing them, giving them more exposure, things like that. And then they either couldn't get them to show asterisks or they showed a really weak asterisk or when they got them bred, they, you know, maybe didn't have a larger litter and things like that. And so when you see something that you think a group is doing everything really, really well on a commercial farm and things aren't working right, you say, well, is there something we're missing? And so what we did is we actually started going back and kind of looking at <clears throat> the very early stages of uh, a guilt in a boar's life. And um, and so it's interesting is that, you know, um, one of the great things about my job is that you learn something every day. And then uh, you, you actually learn something to go, you know, <laughs> this may be what we should have focused more on and this could explain that. So that's kind of what we did. So about... 10 or 15 years ago, we just decided to go back into multiplication farms, you know, those that raised the future replacement gilts or that would become commercial sows. And we also did the same thing on the male side for boars, although that's those boars were going to the boar studs now. And we just decided we would measure things that we could. So we measured all kinds of things related to the birth process of the gilt the litter the gilt was raised in, um, how well it grew before it was weaned. And then after it was weaned, we kind of measured its growth rate and things like that. And then we actually uh, tracked those gilts through um, when they were delivered to commercial farms and then sort of collected information on how long they stayed in production. Did they breed back on schedule and how many total pigs they produced over their lifetime? And so, and then when we have those data sets and for the boar size, we did the same thing. And then we would just measure if the boars were trained to collect, you know, when they were delivered to the boar stud. And if they did enter production, semen production, how many doses they produced each week and, and, and things like that. So when you do things like that, you have uh, your sort of longevity measures, you know, how long they stay in production or how many insemination doses they produce over their lifetime. And then you can look at all these things that were different. It, we didn't really manipulate everything. We just measured it. So this would normally be what would happen on thing. And what it does is it gives us an idea of what areas contribute the most to the differences we see in the gilts that maybe never get bred and versus those that become six parity sows and the boars that never produce an insemination dose versus ones that produce lots of insemination doses. And so what we begin to realize, it's kind of a 50-50 proposition. So about half of the variation we see in both the male and the female in terms of their lifetime productivity can be explained by differences that they were exposed to from the time they're born to the time they were weaned. And so I, I tell my favorite story is it, it really is we talk about lifetime productivity or guilt or boar development it really begins um 
you know, when they're born and it probably begins before they're born. So we haven't, there's a lot of good information now. And some of them that, you know, late in gestation is a very active period where all kinds of organs develop. So the reproductive organs are probably developing as well. And there's some evidence now that maybe even how we treat the sow and the multiplier in effect, you know, the offspring and how they perform anyway. But, but what we really, we haven't focused on that. There's a lot of other people that are smarter than I am that are working on that part of it. But, um, but what we focused on is basically <clears throat> from the time it's born to the time they're weaned. And uh, so again, these are just associations, right? So that's what we do. So what the, it allows us to do is say, okay, if this is really important, then can we come in and have some strategies to actually increase it, you know, to make it better. So that's kind of the, what we do. We measure things. We say, this actually explains a lot of what we see in adults. So is there something else we can do to, to make sure it happens for all the gills or all the boars, not just a few. Okay. So, and so the, the, the two big things that are easiest to measure are birth weight and weaning weight. And it's pretty clear, uh, both in gilts and boars, if they're born bigger, um, they tend to, and they have a heavier weaning weight, um, they tend to stay in production longer and be more productive. Okay. And so the analogy I use is, is it doesn't guarantee that's what will happen, but they have the potential to do that. So the analogy I really like to use since uh, we're here in the, the Southeast and NASCAR racing is pretty big. It's kind of like you have a race car and then you have the driver, the pit crew and the gas. So, you can think of that early stage in both boars and gilts as probably you're building their reproductive organs or the reproductive machinery. Okay. And so that would, there's lots of data to suggest that late in pregnancy and then right after they're born, there's a lot of important things that happen in the reproductive organs of both the very young gilts and boars. So you kind of build that reproductive machinery early on. Um, but you still have to sort of manage it good throughout the rest of the period and when they're kind of in commercial production. And so that would be sort of like the race car drivers, the pit crew and the gas. So you can have a really good engine, but if you have a really bad driver or pit crew or gas, you're not going to do well. And the opposite can be true too, is if you don't build a very good engine in a car, you can have your best driver, the best pit crew and the best gas in the world, but you're still not going to achieve what you want to do. So it really is kind of a, we refer to it as a developmental period during that early stage when things are development. And then the functional period, which is after the animal gets delivered to the commercial south farm or the boar stud, how we manage them then. And it's a 50, 50 proposition. At least that's what our data would say right now. So, um, you know, that's an amazing point. Uh, we always think about guilt development, you know, particularly more so and after 50 pounds, 25 kilos. And we don't think about, you know, what are the, the, the impacts of things we do in that pig's life uh, up to weaning. And so, uh, you know, awesome, uh, you know, uh, being able to put those two things together. Uh, and it's very pertinent, you know, today, uh, gilt's our most expensive animal. You know, we're, we put all this money into to this gilt. We hope we select the right gilts, and that's why it's so important you know, that we pick the, the animals that uh, they're going to, you know, have longevity and are going to give us the most pigs over their lifetime. And uh, and that's a that's a very pertinent uh, issue today. We're trying to figure out uh, what are the what are the, the buttons that we can push, you know, nutritionally, what, you know, um, whatever uh, management wise that we can do to get the get these animals is we're losing, you know, a, a great percent of those, of those gilts never, you know, make it to parity three. It takes about three parities probably, you know, to pay for herself. So, so very, very, you know, very important. Uh, so it's interesting. So we'll, we'll kind of start. And so we've done a little bit of this. Some other people have done um, a lot more work. Um, some of the basic studies have been done by a colleague of mine, Skip Bartol at Auburn and then his collaborator, Carol Bagnell at Rutgers and then Jeff Fillet, who used to be at the USDA Meat Animal Research Center. Um, he did a lot of the applied work. But so we've always understood that colostrum is important for young pigs. And so it provides passive immunity and it also um, basically uh, provides this big jolt of energy when they're first born. So I joke about the kids. And I teach uh, classes here on campus and I tell all our 
undergraduates and veterinary students that colostrum is like these energy drinks I see them running around with all the time. You know, you take a jolt of that and you're energized. So that's kind of what we think it does for pigs. So in addition to that, a colostrum has a lot of uh, factors that have been shown to stimulate different organ developments and different systems. And so um, it's pretty clear that the replacement boar and replacement gill, colostrum probably is one of the adequate colostrum intake can probably be one of the most important things they do to set up that development of their reproductive systems at a very early age. And that's been done in a lot of ways. Uh, some of the, the controlled studies is they uh, had gilts in boars born and they didn't let them have colostrum, but they fed them like milk replacer. And so the ones that didn't have colostrum had all kinds of problems with their reproductive tract development. So that wouldn't happen normally in a production situation. But then uh, Jeff came back, Jeff Lay came back and he measured what we call the immunocrit, which you can take a small sample of blood and it kind of estimates how, many, how much immunoglobulins a pig consumed. And if you do that 24 after a pig's born, that's probably a pretty good indication of how much colostrum they got. And so he showed really nice, and this was on large sets of numbers on gilts that were going into commercial production. So then he tracked those gilts um, in commercial production. And what he showed was is that it, I think if, at a certain level, I think it's the immunocrit level was 0.05, and I'm not sure how much that translates to colostrum intake, but I could look it up, is that any, if they don't have that at 24 hours, then they tend to be delayed at puberty. Uh, when they went to commercial farms, they had trouble finding them in heat. And if they did get them bred, they tended to have fewer number of pigs born alive. And that was only in the first parity, but you would expect it would be later on and stuff. So, so, there's a, so, so that in itself is a pretty good piece of evidence that colostrum is really important. So on the boar side, we've done that. We've actually taken boars and we've supplemented given them with an oral gavage some additional colostrum that first 24 hours versus not so so these boars were nursing their sows normally we just gave them more colostrum right and so um and then we followed those boars through maturity we collected the sperm we're still actually doing that you know looking at how many doses they do and so the boars we gave that supplemental colostrum to um, right now, they have about 30 to 40% more sperm, um, kind of, and they're, I think they're almost two years old now, and their ejaculates and the one that didn't. So don't get me wrong, the ones that got colostrum aren't bad boars, right? They're producing plenty of insemination doses. We were just ready, we were just able to increase that a whole lot higher by giving them more colostrum and stuff. So, so that's a more controlled study, right? You had boars in the same litter nursing the same sow. And we just gave some of them an additional colostrum at first. So, so I think, you know, we always focus on making sure that all our piglets get colostrum, right? Um, but that may actually be more important, um, especially for replacement gilts on multiplication farms. And maybe, you know, boars on uh, multiplication farms are going on the terminal side and stuff. And so, you don't need to dose them, but there can be some things, you know, just some simple management. A lot of these critical care programs that I see implemented really well on commercial farms, you know, how they treat the pigs when they're first born. Um, that can be really important. You know, maybe that can think about that as making that a requirement for, for multiplication farms. And so then once you get past colostrum, then um, there is uh, a pretty good correlation between weaning weight in longevity also in both boars and gilts. And so anything you can do after they get colostrum to allow those animals to actually gain more weight, chances are you increase the odds that they're going to have really good reproductive organ development. And then when they get to the point where you're going to introduce them into their commercial situation, they'll be more productive. So um, lots of things there, you know, um, the nutritionists, I think they want to tar and feather me when I bring it up, but um, you know, some type of supplemental feeding system um, for maybe those gilts that far, fall behind on multiplier farms. Um, what the studies we've done and it works well, we did this in a commercial system, actually we did it in the Goldsboro system and they were still producing years ago, but we went into a multiplication farm and just took away those maternal line barrows because they don't have much value. So they foster them over to other sows who so reduced 
um, the number of pigs nursing in that litter for all those replacement gilts. Um, and it, they had, as you'd expect, they had greater pre-weaning gains, heavier weaning weights, and they stayed in production longer and stuff like that. And so it's a good point. I think you brought it up earlier. Um, the job of the multiplication farm for that sow is you want every gilt that that sow produces to become a, f- a functional, productive commercial sow in somebody's commercial farm, right? And so um, we probably, uh, that's the goal, right? And most of the multiplication farms, um, you know, probably get paid on a bonus or a lot of them do on like how many of those gilts they deliver out the door to be developed into it. So, so, you know, there's some, it, it, maybe we don't have to do it to all the ones. Maybe there's a birth weight, you know, above which we say these pigs are going to be fine, right? But maybe it's the ones in a medium or a light birth weight range. Maybe they're the only ones that need supplemental type of nutritional assistance, if you will, and things like that. So, so I think there's, um, a, we we're talking about it earlier. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that's always been impressed with about our industry here and in the U.S. as well, if uh, if there's a if if we figure out something we think works, you know, put in quotation mark thinks because we don't really know something works until we take it to the industry and the industry adopts it, right? But if we figure out we think something works um, and it has enough value, um, there's going to be somebody out there that figures out, yeah, this is the way it works and this is the way to do it, and then. And then it, it kind of takes off, right? So it may look different on different farms, but if there's enough value in it, the industry will figure out how to implement it um, if it's cost effective anyway. So, but, but you made a good point about gilts, right? So you have all this investment in replacement gilt. Um, and then I tell students, um, if she doesn't get bred or in her production, it's like buying a brand new car, signing that, that loan agreement, and having all those payments and then like a hundred yards down the road, you total it. Right. <laughs> so you, you're still paying for that car, but you're never going to get any payback on it. Right. And so it's the same way with gilts, you know? And so if, if there's a way we can identify the ones that maybe don't have much potential, both on birth weight or weaning weight, get them out, don't invest any more money into them. And then really work with the ones that do to try to enhance what they do. I think in the future, I think that could be, um, you know, a livable strategy for a lot of people. What, what I hope to do, um, and we're looking at this, but it's sometimes, uh, it's kind of looking for a needle in the haystack. So I mentioned these things in colostrum that stimulate reproductive tract development. So if there's one compound or one growth factor or one of those things we can identify that has a, that does most of that, right? then we just give it to everything at processing, right? So we can identify one of those things. We can just give to the young animal. It stimulates the reproductive tract development. And then when we process them, we give them their iron shots. We just give them a dose of that, and then hopefully that'll work. But we're not there yet, but that that would be kind of the long-range goal, I think, right? That would be the easiest thing to do if it's cost-effective. Yeah, you you kind of answered my next question was going to be, do you think it's more colostrum yield or it's, uh, you know, something in, you know, the quality of that? It's both. It's both. So I think there's something in there, but the more colostrum they get, the better off they are. So I think for these things, usually the more, the better. And there's, there's something in there. And then we know a little bit about, you know, uh, we know a little bit more about colostrum. I think everybody knows this, but, you know, piglets that usually nurse on the front two or three pairs, they always do better because they have more milk and it's probably better colostrum versus those that, nurse on the sort of the latter two or the posterior three or hairs and nipples and stuff. So, I mean, there is, so there is some biological variation in all cells. I mean, milk quality and milk quantity and colostrum quantity and colostrum quality and stuff like that. So, so, I, so I think for colostrum for like at least a future replacement guilt or more, I think uh, there's lots of evidence that the more you can get, the better off you're going to be and stuff. Yeah, you know, I really, uh, we've always, our multiplier farms, uh, invariably, we almost always keep the same protocols as we do commercial farms. And uh, so that's a, you know, it gives us an opportunity to maybe implement something that uh, we can make an impact that, uh, you know, requires probably very little uh, investment when you're talking about a wean pig, if it's a little supplement or whatever. 
So that makes a lot, a lot of sense. And we, we got 50% of it and we can, you know, take care of within uh, three weeks yeah. or so. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, uh, so I, I tell people that's where we are now. And I think, you know, is, is we go back and maybe if we go back and look at even further, you know, late in gestation, because uh, for most animals, you know, that late gestation period, that could also be an opportunity um, to like, improve a lot of things for a lot of our sows and pigs. So there's a lot of people working on late gestational feeding and the shift that I've seen, and it's even going back earlier, but the shifts I've seen is maybe um, going away from like bump feeding or something like that to going to targeted increase in certain nutrients that may actually stimulate the development of different organs. And there's probably some that stimulate the development of the reproductive organs. So I could see, I could envision a program maybe in 10 or 15 years where you had a special diet the last couple of weeks for your multiplication sows in late gestation, right? And they're born, um, they get plenty of colostrum, but just to make sure in case they didn't, you kind of dose them with something that would stimulate their reproductive tract development. And then after that, you would have, hopefully have a system where they'd have access to plenty of like mature milk from the sow through the rest of, of uh, lactation and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, you, you kind of have to think about those things in the big picture, but, um, and then, but, but I do think, um, you know, I, I've often, uh, I grew up, uh, I was the run of the litter. So they, the, my family always had me do all the, the, the strange things or the, the things, but, uh, um, I grew up having to get the, the, my uncle had a, a dairy. And so they, um, I had to get up and get the cows up in the morning and stuff. And, uh, but the one thing that, that I learned from the dairy industry, you know, they wean their replacement heifers at birth and they really have gotten colostrum management for those animals kind of fine tuned, right? They collect colostrum. They know the quality of it. They give them a certain dose and then they develop them on and stuff like that. And so as a result, you know, we have really productive dairy cows and, and things like that. So, so I think, you know, sometimes, uh, I've kind of been looking at what been talking to my colleagues here that work with uh, the dairy industry. And, uh, and so I think the swine industry could learn a lot about colostrum management for replacement females anyway, from the dairy industry and what they do. You know? So, so they know they wean at birth out of necessity, right. You know, because of the, that they're selling the milk and everything like that, but they do a pretty decent job, you know, and they can freeze it and thaw it and dose it you know, or they can collect it and give it fresh, you know, and they're, again, they're in a little bit different system than we are. Right. But, but uh, so there's a, there's something with it, you know, we can, I think there's some things maybe that, uh, that at least I can learn, you know, from the dairy industry and what they've done and see if it has any sort of real application for the, the swine industry and stuff like that in terms of colostrum management. And stuff, so. Yeah. You made a good point on the, that last, uh, you know, trimester gestation being an opportunity. And I think we get caught up as nutritionists, you know, looking at birth weight. And we really, we really have found a lot of things that we really have made an impact uh, significantly with birth weights. But uh, to your point, you know, if, if we're, uh, and that's the next question, you know, is, is there something in utero maybe that we could do, uh, you know, other uh, implementations that possibly you think might uh, impact that animal's reproductive uh, capacity going in the future. Yeah, it's it's um so it's really interesting. The litter bearing species like the pig, you know, we're it's 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 in terms of birth weight and um, you know fetal development throughout all of gestation. It's 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 one of the more challenging physiological sort of enigmas that we have to deal with with litter bearing species, right? Because the uterus basically has finite uterine space. And then what we've essentially done with our really highly prolific sows is they're, you know, they're, some of them going to have 14, 15, 16, 18, 20 pigs. And so we've increased kind of litter size, um, you know, without maybe increasing the same sort of uterine function or capacity and stuff. So then what happens is we get a larger litter with smaller pigs and that's just a function of supply and demand and stuff. And I, I think, um, you know, that from genetic selection that we've made progress in that area because birth weights are, are creeping up. But the interesting thing is it, it, yeah, 
the way I look at it in the simplest view is um, the placenta, the, pl- the area that the, each individual piglet's placenta occupies probably dictates how big that pig's going to get. So if a pig has a large placental area and gets kind of attached early, and we think anyway, placentation or attachment starts somewhere around the second week after they're bred, and it probably is finished somewhere around 30 or 35 days, so that first month, you know, basically piglets have kind of lined up where they are in the uterus. The placenta's got its space, um, and some of them have lots of space. Some of them have little space. Um, and then it just kind of gets amplified from there, right? So I do think, um, you know, in terms of uh, there's some things that uh, I know there's groups at Texas A&M, and we've got a faculty member here. Um, they're more basic scientists, but they're doing really good work and looking at are there things we can feed sows early in pregnancy that helps stimulate sort of angiogenesis, that's the blood development of blood vessels in the uterus that kind of acts so there's actually sort of more efficient, if you will, uterine space when the sort of implantation starts and begins. And so if you have more, if, if you have more blood vessels per square inch, right, then you can occupy, you should be able to get more nutrients through the, you know, nutrient transfer across the placenta to the fetus. And then you could actually kind of hopefully have more even or bigger birth weight. So that's kind of the thing, right? It's, it's a, it's a two tiered problem. You want to get the nutrients there. So you can do that by probably feeding the sow, but you still have to have the pathway for those nutrients to get to the fetus. And that's really through the placental surface area. You know, it leaves the the uterine circulation and enters the fetal circulation eventually gets to the, so there's, you know, if you look, people will begin to look at, different types of amino acids, different types of growth factors and things like that. And there's lots of things that show promise, right? The, the key is, I think, and, and this may take more than a few years is to figure out if there's a correct sequence or combination or when and things like that. Um, and then it's really interesting. Uh, one of my real good friends um, from Virginia Tech, we were actually undergraduates together. It's Mark Estian. So, you know, he's done really good work at Virginia Tech and stuff. And and he was probably one of the first ones to actually look at, and this was actually before the industry started moving from gestation crates to gestation pens. But he did a really nice study there um, um, at his research station in the what we call South Side of Virginia, where he looked at the offspring from uh Sows that gestated in pens versus sows that gestated in crates, totally. And then he also did what we kind of do now. He had sows gestate for about 30 or 40 days in crates and then move them into pens. And so there's differences in how those gilts, um, once they're born, and once they were born, they kind of raised them all the same and stuff. But those gilts had differences in terms of like age at puberty and ovulation rate and stuff like that. And so they were fed the same environment. They were fed the same feed. and did everything. And so, you know, some of the housing stuff that, that, that we look at, um, you know, that probably needs to be reinvestigated a little bit in terms of, you know, maybe there's some things that, you know, we should or shouldn't be doing in terms of housing or, or there are things that uh, maybe we could do in housing that, that kind of make that offspring sort of more, developmentally competent if you want to, you know, um, in the human world, you know, they, they, they call it, they refer to it as epigenetic effects, right? So there are things that program. And so we've, you, every time you look at any magazine or listen to any health show about the human, they're always talking about epigenetic effects and how during pregnancy, if you do this or do that, it could affect your offspring and, and then maybe their offspring and stuff. Well, that's probably true for pigs. And I think the data is out there to suggest that a lot of the things we do may have an impact, you know, good or bad, you know, and stuff. So, so, so that's something to, then we talked about it uh, a little bit and over the years, but you know, in the South here in the Southeast, you know, heat, heat stress on sows is not good. So even, you know, even if the sow um, survives and you have really good ventilation and stuff like that, they're probably going to get hot here if they just stayed through the summer. Right. And so then there is, there's a lot of good work coming out. Uh, this was actually done, um, I guess there was folks at Iowa State and Missouri, and then one of my 
um, former PhD students, uh, uh, Kara Stewart, who was at Purdue, did some of this. But but sows that get heat stressed in late gestation, or I think the Missouri work said just about any time during gestation, um, their offspring, you know, aren't as reproductively competent as ones that don't. Okay. So maybe in the South, maybe we have to take that in consideration, right? Maybe we don't use those animals as replacement animals that gestate during August or something if it gets really hot. Or maybe there's a way we need to, to monitor barn or animal temperature and if it gets too high saying, yeah, these animals aren't really necessarily going to be the most productive over their life and stuff. And so the, the challenge is like we talked about earlier, you wouldn't know that. They may, you know, we don't know what happens, but they may come into heat the first parity and be fine. And we may not see those long-term effects till later and stuff. So, um, so there's lots of things I think to think about um, in that regard as well. So. Yeah. Here in North Carolina as well, you know, uh, I, sometimes I think we think we're the only, uh, we're the only uh, region that suffers from heat stress, <laughs> but uh, you know, they've had some really tough heat in, in the Midwest this year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you really turned on a, a lot of your work here with heat stress, I think is, is uh, had people pause a little bit and think about, you know, you know, what are we doing and, uh, how can we mitigate heat? And even, you know, we always think about it in, in the Farrowin house, you know, we know sure. if, if it's hotter, uh, above that animal's, uh, temperature, uh, she's going to eat less. And all the negative connotations there, but we don't think about, you know, our, our gestating breeding barns. Maybe we're, we're, we're really, maybe we're affecting, uh, litter size, you know, and don't even realize it. Uh, so it's kind of a silent killer sometimes. And, and here we, you know, we suffer. It seems like heat is, uh, I know you, we mentioned before, uh, heat is probably more of impactful than even purrs if somebody, uh, deep home. And so, so I think it's a it's a very economic uh, issue, uh, economical important issue for for us, particularly in the industry in general. But you know, you're, yeah, you're, I, go ahead. Yeah. So I, the other thing, I just when you were mentioning that, I was thinking about uh, the so the folks it's uh, Jay Johnston and Lance Baumgartner and Jason Ross there at Purdue and Iowa State, and then Tim Safransky at Missouri, and then and then Kara Ross or Kara Stewart, she was at Purdue, but they've done all this work. But one of the things that, that really stood out in their work for me is that, is that the offspring from sows that were experienced heat stress are actually less tolerant of heat as adults. So think about that. So, so like, so a sow, you know, most animals have homeostatic mechanisms where it gets hot, they have to cool themselves down. And if they do a pretty good job, they can have a reasonably normal litter and reproduce fine. But, but, it, but this is in addition, you know, they'd actually looked, you know, they exposed them to different temperatures and saw how quickly they recovered or didn't recover. So, so I think this is right. And if I'm not, I'm sure one of them will email or call you and tell them I'm wrong, which is fine. But I think it was um, that when those sows were exposed to heat and gestation, their offspring were, had a reduced ability to adjust to high temperatures when they were adults, right? So you're programming them to be less heat sort of tolerant and more heat susceptible and things like that. So, um, so it, it is, um, it's, it's, you know, we don't think about it. And, and, uh, it, and then the other thing is, you know, it, it may, it could, we think about heat stress as a really, really hot days for a, a short period of time, but, you know, gestation is 114 days. And so, so if you have moderate heat stress over a long period of time, that could actually have the same effect as a, like a really hot spell for a week. We just don't know, right? And so it's, it's, it's one of those things. So. Yeah, I was talking, uh, I tell people, uh, one of the issues, we, we, we had the growth in the industry back in North Carolina back in the 80s. And uh, we built barns, and, and uh, it had been nice to know the, the knowledge, body of knowledge that we have today and we can go back and rebuild those barns because we got barns that, for animals that are, you know, uh, today greatly genetically superior. We got more pigs, but we've got the same footprint. We got the same barn. We're feeding animals the same. 
you know, if we could go back, we would probably have two lines in the gestation barn. Uh, just it just be nice to know. And I think, you know, today that's a question, you know, we, we, we struggle to maybe uh, we're, to your point, we got a race car, but we're not getting everything out of it, you know, because we just don't have the barns. We don't have the system to really fully uh, take take advantage of some of these, uh, some of the information and knowledge that we built. So that's, I think going forward, that's going to be some tough questions as producers is uh, we keep, you know, keep these old barns where we know there's things that we can do that uh, we could impact uh, if we had different systems, feeding systems. So, yes. So that, to that point, I'll tell you is, um, so talking about something entirely different, but, um, but I'm confident that the industry will do it. Right. Uh, yeah. So like, like when I, first started here back in the mid eighties. Um, we, you know, everyone was breeding naturally and the barns were set up for natural mating, you know, and stuff like that. And then, um, it's almost like, you know, when the industry shifted to a carcass merit buying system, AI really took off, but, but the guys figured it out. A lot of the guys here and other places I visited across the country, um, in other countries, they figured it out. They took a barn like the old, I don't know, probably you and I are the only ones who remember this, but the old Lubbock style breeding barns, right? Where we backed them out, the boars were behind, we backed them out and you bred, and then you had one sow each week, you know, for the boars, and then you move the boars now. Well, they figured it out. They used those barns uh, and converted them to barns for AI and stuff, and so they made use of that space. So I, I'm convinced that if if we get the information out there for the people that are working on the farms and stuff, they can figure out how to do it and stuff. But, you know, that that is... Um, it's a good point. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, I think about this, you know, on an entirely different subject, right? But um, when, and you know this, when most of our finishing barns were built here in North Carolina for the guys that are finishing out pigs, that was in the 90s, right? And so if you looked at our average number wean back then, it was maybe nine or 10 pigs. And so now we have the, we have the same, we have the same finishing space, right? Cause we haven't built any more finishing barns, but we're weaning like 12 pigs. So we have a 20% increase in pigs that have to flow through the system, you know, that, that, that wasn't really built for that. Right. And so then right. the other thing is we've taken them to heavier market weights. Right. right. So, so I mean, so it, it is to your point, you know, there is, there is this, there are going to have to be some readjustments or things like that on one side or the other, because we have made a better sow, a better sow, more productive sow. And then when we built our production systems, our sow farms, our nurseries and our finishers, it was based on a certain level of performance and we've exceeded that. Plus we've gone to heavier weights because the genetics have gotten better because we can take them to 300 pounds. And um, so um, we had, um, we were talking about it this week just to show you the change that we had. So, uh, we were, I was going through some of my files, uh, for the senior level class. And so when I came here, uh, in the mid eighties, if you sold a 230 pound pig, you would get docked for it being too heavy. Right. So the Packers <laughs> didn't want a 230 pound pig. Yeah. And now if you try to sell them a 230 pound pig, they won't take it because it's too light, you know, yep. and that, that 230 pound pig, may have had like an inch, maybe 1.2 inches of back fat. And now that 300 pound pig barely has a half inch of back fat. So that's just, you know, and you think about it in 30 years or 37 years, that's a remarkable transformation of the animal and what the industry's done. And stuff, so. Yeah. I can remember when, when uh, 240, that was our target. Yeah. You know, 240. Yeah. And now it's like I said, 290 and who knows with, with genetics where we, where we'll get to going there. But, well, I had a couple of a question, uh, and I, you're very, uh, uh, you have a lot of humility, but I want you to put that down for a minute. What do you think it, it, over your career maybe is your biggest, uh, you feel like biggest impact? And it may be, maybe it's on students that, you know, uh, are, are yeah, I would, I would say, um, um, I think, um, I would have to, to say, I think it's maybe the, the people I've helped get interested in working with pigs. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting if I took a snapshot of our class 
in the mid 1980s, you know, where the students came from, the male to female ratio, uh, what they wanted to do, why they entered animal science, and then take a snapshot of it now, it's entirely different. So, um, and that's not good. That's not bad. Don't get me wrong. Um, so when I first started, had lots of kids, lots of students that came from a farm, wanted to go back to a farm. Um, you know, had a fair number that wanted to be vets, but they were thinking about other things as well. Um, now, uh, most of our students are what we call urban or rural non-farm. Um, most of them want to be a veterinarian. A lot of them never seen a pig, except on a picture, never handled a pig or things like that. So I think um, I, I think I always look at it as an opportunity. Um, the, the kids today are really bright. They're more worldly than I was at their age. I mean, I got all my information from an AM radio, <laughs> like you did. <laughs> we're lucky to have yeah. like two television channels and stuff, and there was no internet, no cell phones or computers. So I was oblivious to what was going on in the, around the world. And the kids today are really in tune to things, to things like that. So they're very bright and stuff like that. And so I think, um, y- you know, getting them interested in animals first and then agricultural second. Um, and then watching the ones that go on to do things. So I'll, I'll, I'll brag on him. He'll probably tell you, but, um, so Dr. Allman and I, um, uh, one of the things we did early on is, uh, we kind of, along with, uh, uh, Carm Parkhurst in poultry science, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. And then John Barnes in, in, uh, at the vet school, Um, we created or started what we call our food animal scholars program here at NC state. Right. And it was in response to the swine and the poultry industry needing veterinarians to actually focus on providing expertise for the poultry and the swine industry. So, so um, it was originally called the swine and poultry scholars program. We picked one student, one swine person and one poultry person, you know, early in their undergraduate career. And they were promised sort of admission to vet school if they met the minimum requirements later and stuff. And so that program under Jim Floyd was a department head for a while at the vet school. And he saw the value in that program. And he's kind of under his leadership, it kind of grew from two students to now we have six that we pick and then two alternates and all the alternates have gotten in. So I, I tell people it's really eight. Right. Um, and so the kids that go on to that program and have really done remarkable things never would have really thought about, you know, being a swan vet. And I could list them. And if I start listing them, um, I'm, I'm going to, they're going to get mad at me because I'm going to forget somebody. I'm not going to list them and stuff. But you, but Glenn and I were talking about it the other day. And I think all like a lot of the major sort of swan producing areas, you know, like Iowa, Minnesota and Texas and North Carolina, even overseas a lot for companies and stuff. We've got a couple that work for the government have all come through that program. And so they all started out as undergraduates, right? And there was maybe one, I think, that really had an interest for poultry or swine. Um, and then we got them into this program. They got to do some things and then they've really done nice things and stuff. And so, um, and so I think that's important. And, and I would say here, we're really fortunate. Um, we have a really good working relationship with you folks out in the industry. They let us bring students to commercial farms. Um, and, uh, and then our university has made the decision that we're going to have our research and teaching farms and we're going to keep them open. Um, so, so I tell our kids, you know, our, our swine educational unit is um, south of town off Lake Wheeler Road. At the end of the road that uh, our swine and dairy unit are off of, uh, there's a gated community with $1.5 million homes, right? But but they love having swine yeah. and dairy farms right in front of them because they know it's not going to be developed. You know, we, we manage stuff responsibly. They love it and stuff. And so I, th- I think it's actually, um, I would say, you know, probably the students and trying to get students interested in agriculture and, and just selfishly for our industry interested in pigs and swine production and stuff. I've always told people if you give me a student long enough and I can be out at the swine farm where there's sows and baby pigs, I can probably convert them. I won't tell you who they are, but there are a couple of uh, uh, swine veterinarians that started out as what we call equine enthusiasts, you know, and I converted them. So if I can convert equine (laughs) enthusiasts into swine vets, 
then that's pretty good, right? But um, but it's not just me. It's you know it's the whole effort of we have support from the industry, we have support from the National Pork Board and the the North Carolina Pork Council, and then and then from the department, you know, in the university as well to make sure we maintain these uh, these laboratories and teaching facilities and stuff. Yeah, it, you know, uh, just thinking as great as uh, as the work you've done, the research. Yeah, if you think about it, it's probably is you've got somebody uh, somebody that's come through this program in just about all areas of the production, all areas of the country and regions, and and key decision makers. So it must be. And yeah, I think NC State. Um, of course, I'm biased. You're biased, but. Uh, you know, I think we got a good program. We got farms. We got the industry. They're all close here uh, in proximity, and then even the feed mill. You know, we've yeah, got right. exactly we have a feed mill that can make uh, you know custom feeds and and uh, can look at different things. So it's just it's just an amazing uh, area and uh, program. I think. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Like Adam Fahrenholtz and the guys in poultry science that run the feed mill are really good, and so you know he started. A- to that point, he started like the feed mill management sort of minor and certificate. And so like I have graduate students and undergraduates that, you know, I really, even if they're not going to do anything with a feed mill, I kind of have them go through that because they see what's involved because, you know, feed's such an important part of all our agricultural industry and stuff. And, uh, you know, who would have thought, right? Like you mentioned it earlier, who would have thought in a grain deficit state, um, we could develop a feed mill, but I mean, let me tell you that feed mill is busy. Like if you want feed made for you, you better get in line, you know, because they're busy and they do a really good job and they teach the kids. And it's, it's really a, it's really a working and teaching feed mill. The students that go through that program and work there, they do everything that they're going to do if they decide to go into the the feed mill and industry, um, you know, as a full-time career and stuff. Yeah, I think it's so important uh, as, as nutritionists, fellow nutritionists uh, from other areas, you talk to them, they, sometimes they don't have the background in the feed that you think, uh, the manufacturing of feed that you would uh, you think they would. And even vets, you know, uh, vets that come through the program that, that take vet, you know, female classes, they have at least some kind of perspective and understanding of, of how that process works. And, and uh, so it's, I think it's a good the thing that I really, um, you know, we, we have the students kind of in one of the classes kind of go out there and watch them make the swine feed that they're going to deliver to our swine unit. And then we kind of, we have them take samples and send it into our feed analysis lab at NCDA and then just kind of look at it. But I think it really hit home, you know, when the, the students saw how they screen the raw ingredients that go in. And so like when we were there, they actually rejected a load of corn because it didn't meet their specs or things like that. So that, so even if you don't go work in the swine industry and stuff, but you saw that you could say, yeah, they, they're worried, you know, they're worried about quality for the animals and also for, for uh, whatever product that we're going to sell that people might consume, you know, or the pigs that produce the product that ate that feed, you know, and things like that. So it's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, monitoring and regulation. I think that people don't realize, you know, like if, if they just come to the swan farm for a tour, they just see feed there, right? They say, Oh, they keep it in a bin, you know, but they don't realize all the science and the screening that went in before it got to that bin. Right. So. So, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, our time's coming pretty near here. And I uh, just want, as a, as a producer here in North Carolina, fellow North Carolinian, uh, I want to say I appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, it, it, it's made a big impact. I can think about all the uh, uh, pr- very practical things that you can take that research and just take it out on your farm and, and make an impact. So I, I really like applied, you know, research and, and that's what you've given us, uh, being able to understand what's going on and, and maybe identify some of the factors, you know, as, as we talk about semen quality and, you know, where in the, where in the process are we making a mistake? It's, it's tough sometimes. You've got so many areas and so many factors. So, so appreciate all the work. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista. 
new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Feed flow. Feed is too expensive to ignore. Take control with feed flow. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Feedflow is changing the way the swine industry sees feed. As the world's only on-pipe feed sensor, Feedflow tells you exactly how much feed is being delivered to your animals, so you can be sure that every pig in your barn is well-fed and growing. With industry-leading precision and up-to-the-minute real-time data and alerts, Feedflow is a simple and affordable way to improve production outcomes across your organization. Feed is too expensive to ignore. Try Feedflow today. At the end, uh, we always ask three questions. Uh, uh, first question, you know, what would be your favorite resource, book? Uh doesn't have to be about pigs. It could be about anything. What would you say is so, your favorite? I've learned, I've learned more about life in general, and I've learned more about my job by going out and visiting with producers. So producers are all my favorite resource. Um, so, uh, um, so they're uh, – and even if it's not about pigs, uh, they, it's really kind of interesting because they've, you know, there's there's a lot of wisdom out there, um, I think, for about life in general, you know, especially with, you know, what our country's gone through with the pandemic and, and things and that, you know, um, you know, some of the folks that have been in business for a long time here in agriculture and other places, you know, you know, agriculture is an industry where there's you have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, but everybody kind of manages to to not get too worked up over the highs and not to worry about much of the lows, and they just keep on and, and doing things like that. So it have to be producers. Up yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I go out to a, a walk through barns, and uh, it's the people on the front line that really exactly you know, it really gets you excited. You leave there because you understand that they care about what they're doing, and they're there to do a, you know. For the most part, they're there to do a great job, and, and they want to hear, and they want to listen, they want to improve. But uh, but it just brightens them. They, they're excited every day. They wake up, they go to the farm, and they're ready to, you know, they really love what they do. So it really it really kind of energizes your battery, so to yeah. speak, when, you, when, you, when you're able to visit that. Uh, how about the, maybe the biggest influence on your career? It would be or Yeah, you know, it's like most people. Um, it's probably my family. Um so my, my family was really supportive. Um, my favorite story <laughs> is, uh, my parents, uh, uh, gave me, uh, money to buy a high school class ring. And, um, I bought two bread gilts instead. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I kept like for about like a month afterward, I walked around the house, you know, with my hands in my pocket, you know, and then, uh, and I was scared to death, you know, and, and then when I told them, and they said, yeah, it's okay. And, um, and then, you know, my, uh, both my dad, you know, he, he, uh, you know, and he gave me some good advice. So it was pretty clear. I wasn't going to be able to go home and farm for a lot of reasons. And he said, well, if you don't want to go home and farm and you really want to make a contribution, you need to go out and learn the most you can about something you're interested in and then help other people, you know, with their problems addressing it. And so I've, try to do that and stuff. So I'd have to say it's, it's my family and stuff. So, Very good. Yeah. And my wife uh, and my family now, they've been, a you know, it's like anybody else. It's, you can't do anything by yourself. Right? So, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're only as good as our support. That's right. Supporting group. Uh, lastly, uh, what do you think are some traits or characteristics you would, that you find with, with successful people in our industry? What are some of the, so I think, um, so in, in the swine industry, I've really been, um, I think, um, most of the people listen first, um, and then they ask, they act later. Um, the other, the other thing I think is, and this is probably really true. They understand how to take <clears throat> disappointment, either our uh, bad times and then, kind of turn them into good times. So, so another way of doing it is they learn how to, to deal with, I won't call it a failure, but like disappointments and something didn't happen or something didn't turn right. And sometimes it's those things happen because of things we do. 
And sometimes it happens because of things that are entirely out of our control. But in the end of the day, people learn how to turn that into a positive thing. They, they, they learn how to deal with disappointment and things like that. And so, and so that, that's something that at least, you know, being teaching here for 37 years, that's something that, and I'm probably going to get in trouble, but that's something that the younger generation that I teach students isn't as good about the older generation. It's like, you don't have to be perfect. You, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but you need to learn from your mistakes. I always tell students, I learn a lot more from things that didn't work out than things that, that I worked out, right? You learn a lot more from your mistakes, your disappointments, and your successes. And so I think that kind of what I see in lots of areas, especially in agriculture, those are the people that they really get. So yeah, I think if you, if anybody were to pick, you know, anybody that's a, a leader in any realm of agriculture, whether it be in production or research or government or anything like that, and, and they'll tell you, yeah, yeah, I did this and that was really stupid, but I learned more from that and I never did it again or I knew not what, what not to do in the future and stuff. So you have to learn. You can't be afraid to make mistakes, but when you do, you can't dwell on it. You just got to learn from it and go on. And stuff. That's a good point. You know, I think we, we, our industry is resilient. You know, we, we, as you said, it's, it's cyclical sometimes. You know, the, the market's good, the market's bad, and, and uh, we're, we definitely are not afraid to try something. And, and if I find out it doesn't work, you know, it's not the end of the world. You know, I always tell people, uh, I try to learn from my own mistakes, but it's uh, even better if you can learn from others' mistakes. <laughs> That's right. Well, that's been, you don't wish you don't wish mistakes on anybody, but like if somebody else made it first and then you don't do it, then you learn something. You know? so, exactly. And you owe them a big favor, right? I, you really do. So exactly, yeah. And, and like to your point, you know, uh, as you may know, uh, as you know very well, you go and research. You, you got you know hypothesis, and you think yeah. something's going, and it turns out totally opposite. And you think it's a failure, but in act, you know, act, actuality, you learn something, and the industry learns something, and and so we learn just as much from that failure as we did from something that you know turned out to be true. That's exactly true. Yep. So, well, very good. Well, uh, Dr. Flowers, I appreciate your time today, and. Uh, Maybe we have We could go on. Uh, we could have ten more podcasts and uh, still not cover all the work you've done. And so, uh, definitely look forward maybe getting you on another podcast going forward and uh, picking your brain on some other topics as well. All right, thanks, Jerry. No problem. I really enjoy it. So.